to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. I am your co-host, Austin. And Austin has a baseball. Why do you have a baseball, babe? What does that have to do with anything? Well, because people are probably going to hear you throwing it and catching it. I'm not planning to do that throughout the show. Oh, you're not? I just I didn't know if you wanted to like maybe plug your hobby talk videos or maybe like talk about some of the things that you've got in the works. No, we'll just get into the show this time and I'll do that in the future. Okay. Thank you very much for that opportunity. Leave a cliffhanger. Um, Okay. So before we get started, it is so freaking cold. Negative 40 wind chill. Negative 40. My hands are freezing. My toes are freezing. If you're watching us on video as a Patreon, you'll get this a month before anyone on YouTube does. So maybe it's a little more relevant to you right now because it's so cold. And if you're living in the Midwest, you get it. But yesterday we had the Chiefs game and it was like negative 40 or something. Wind chill. And there was people freezing watching this game. I don't know how people do that. I literally jammed my finger while I was setting us up. And it hurt so bad because I was extra cold. And I was just thinking, man, those football players, like how are they getting hit and not just wanting to go kill somebody after? Be frigid. (laughs) Oh, so cold. And then last night our cat got out. That was kind of a funny story. Do you want to tell it, babe, or should I tell it? Funny for who? (laughs) Funny for no one. The stupid cat ran outside and Kelly's scared to death of being outside in that cold of weather. Even though he chooses to run outside, he chose to run down the driveway, jump a fence, run into some woods. And so Kelly said, let's go get him. Well, he's normally an outdoor cat. And so I get it. He wants to be outside. But I don't think he realizes just how cold it is. And I was afraid that he was going to like go nestle in somewhere and then freeze to death and not be able to come back. So yeah, we had to like trek into these like huge snow mounds. I was sinking in the snow. I had to climb through a bar. At almost wire 11 fence. o'clock at night in negative 40 degree wind chill. It was not funny. It was stupid. It was awful. Um, but I got the cat and he's fine. So whatever. Good deal. <laughs> Should we get started with today's story now? Let's roll. Okay. So today we are talking about the murder of Lauren Giddings. Lauren Teresa Giddings was born on April 18, 1984 in Tacoma Park, Maryland to parents Bill and Karen Giddings. She grew up in Laurel, which is about 30 minutes northeast of Tacoma Park. She went to a private elementary school at St. Mary of the Mills Catholic School before attending a public high school called Althalton in Columbia. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but in Columbia, Maryland. Here is where she excelled in playing field hockey and softball, and she had no problem making a lot of friends with her bubbly, outgoing personality. You know what's funny? Just a side note, I just now put this together. We've been watching Legally Blonde a lot, and throughout this movie, I feel like you can kind of picture Lauren Giddings as Elle Woods, this blonde, beautiful, super sweet, kind-natured girl, but very, very smart at the core. Mm-hmm. So if that gives you kind of any idea of who we're talking about today. Interesting. So after she graduated from Atholton in 2002, Lauren moved to Georgia and attended private women's Agnes Scott College, where she majored in political science with a minor in religious studies. She played softball for the Agnes Scott College Scottish Terriers. I think that is such a funny mascot. Scottish Terriers. It's pretty specific. Yeah, I think they called them Scots, but I just still think it's so fun. I never knew Scottish Terriers could be a mascot. But anyway, she was the first person in her family to go to college. 
In 2008, Lauren moved to Macon, Georgia to begin law school at Mercer University with dreams of becoming a defense attorney. Three years later, in May of 2011, she received her law degree and began preparing for the biggest exam of her life, the Georgia Bar Exam. For work, she began interning at a law firm called King and Spalding. While she was an intern there, she met an attorney who also worked there named David S. Vandiver III, and the two struck up a romantic relationship. As she studied for the bar that summer, she did travel back to Maryland to be in her sister Caitlin's wedding on June 17th, and she was actually the maid of honor. She wore this short little white dress next to this beautiful bride, surrounded by the bridesmaids in their turquoise dresses, and Lauren wore her blonde shoulder-length hair in a half-updo with her bangs pinned back, true to the styles and trends of 2011. The girls all held their bouquets of sunflowers as they walked down the aisle, Lauren was tall, tan, beautiful, and beaming in these pictures with her family, but these would be the last photos that Lauren would get with her family. After the wedding, Lauren returned to Macon to her apartment at Barrister's Hall to study for the bar, and she told her family that she was going to be off her phone and social media for a bit so that she could really focus on studying. On Friday, June 24th, Lauren met up with some friends at a bar called The Rookery. Some of their friends were playing in a band that night, so Lauren took a break from studying to go support them. And the next day, Saturday 20, the 25th, Lauren went to the Macon Country Club to swim and lay out and just take a break from studying before heading home around 6.30 p.m. Later that night, around 10 p.m., Lauren typed out an email to her boyfriend and in this email, she expressed concerns that someone might have broken into her apartment while she was gone because there were some random things moved around. She would have gone to his place to spend the night, but he was out of town. Regardless, she was actually going to be moving out of the complex in just a few days, so that offered her some relief. On Monday, June 27th, Lauren hadn't responded to anyone's messages, but they assumed that she was studying like she told them she would be doing. So at first, when she stopped responding to texts and calls, her family and friends weren't too concerned. But by June 29th, nobody had heard from her for a few days, and their alarm bells started going off. The fact that she was radio silent to literally anyone and everyone just was not sitting right with those who were closest to her. So her sister, Caitlin, called the Macon police, and she also alerted her dad that she believed something might be wrong with Lauren. Lauren's dad, Bill, immediately drove straight from Maryland to Macon to file the missing persons report, while her mom, Karen, planned to fly down the next day. The next day, June 30th, Lauren's best friend, Ashley Morehouse, along with her boyfriend, went to Lauren's apartment. Before they went into the apartment, Ashley remembers telling her boyfriend to be prepared just in case what they find is super upsetting. And when they got there, they noticed that Lauren's car was parked in its usual spot. They knocked on the door, but there was no answer, so they just waited and waited. And then Ashley remembered that Lauren hid a spare key in a little candle on her balcony. Once they got into her apartment, Lauren's neighbor came out to see what was going on, and once they informed him of the situation, he too became concerned. So the three of them all went into her apartment together. And what they found was nothing. Lauren wasn't there, nothing was disturbed, but her purse, wallet, and keys were all still there. So then how was the apartment locked with her keys inside, but 
Her car was still there and Lauren's gone. Could she have used the spare key to lock the apartment before she left? Couldn't she have just turned the doorknob and closed it and it locks behind her? No, I think it's a deadbolt. Oh, okay. And if so, why would she leave all of her belongings behind? That same day back in Maryland, Caitlin and her other sister, Sarah, drove their mom to the airport. But shortly after they dropped her off, they received news that a body had been found near the complex where Lauren lived. So they turned around and went straight back to the airport to get their mom because they didn't want her to find out on her own while she was by herself at the airport or on her way there. According to reports, when police searched Lauren's apartment, they used luminol to detect if any blood had been cleaned up. When they sprayed the luminol in Lauren's bathroom, it lit up under the black light. Her bathtub was completely covered. The tile floor had evidence of blood as well. And police immediately expanded the search to the outside of her apartment since her body was not inside. Right away behind the small eight-unit apartment complex where Lauren lived, police found a torso in a community trash can behind the building. They were able to test the DNA from the torso and match it to hairs found on one of Lauren's hairbrushes, as well as with samples from her parents. Oh, man, that sucks. So as the news spread, the local news station, WGXA, came out to the apartment complex to cover the developing story. And they were actually there. They were able to interview the neighbor that helped Ashley and her boyfriend enter Lauren's apartment. And he agreed to do an interview on live television. His name was Stephen McDaniel, and I'm going to show you a clip of this interview. I was living there? Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, we're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and I mean, no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time or anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've always seen noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I, were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? Her? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went, at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but, I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. What about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. Weird. Super, like, suspicious. The way that when she's she's asking him, would she have any enemies? And instead of just saying, no, no enemies, he says, we don't know where she's at. That's the first where it gets weird. It gets really weird when he freezes and 
asked to sit down. That's strange. That's interesting you said that because I didn't even pick up on the on that point when she asked if she had any enemies. Yeah, she says, he would, said, would he have any enemies? She? And instead of him saying, no, she, you know, she wouldn't be the type of person that would have enemies, or instead of saying, I don't know, she pissed somebody off, he says, we don't know where she's at. Like, it's like he's uh, dodging the question is the way I perceived it. That's interesting. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, it's But weird. I did pick up, obviously, on the weird energy he gave once he found out that a body was found. Right. and But then also when he said, we don't know where she is, and then he starts diving into detail about, well, we went in there, and I, it's just, that was a strange reaction. Yeah. That was as strange as the ending to me. Yeah. That's interesting. So after this part of the interview, he went to sit down on the curb. He was visibly upset. And so someone from the AT&T building next door offered for him to come inside, cool off, and collect himself. And he sat in there for about 20 minutes before he came back out to finish his interview with WGXA. So Stephen was talking a lot. And maybe he was just trying to help as a concerned neighbor and acquaintance of Lawrence, but something just seemed off. So he remained on police's radar. And during their investigation, they interviewed Stephen and also some of Stephen's friends. His own friends described him as strange and as having a zombie fetish and that sometimes he would ask people how they would commit the perfect murder. Now, I mean, Weird. Red flags all around. The only people saying that that aren't weird are the weird listeners to this and you. It's still weird, okay? It's definitely weird. At least you guys can explain it away with like, oh my God, I listen to every episode of Mama Mystery. Or you can explain it with, I'm a host of a true crime podcast. But to walk around looking like that dude, you know, <laughs> that's one of the, like the guy, um, listen, this is judgmental. I'm just going to say it, okay? Just say it, Austin. The guy looks like the type of guy that you'd make friends with before the movie starts, just in case. <laughs> All right? You never seen those memes? Like where there's this dude sitting next to the person in this in the movie theater with the blue hair, and he's like made friends just in case. Oh, oh no! <laughs> You've never seen That's that. Such a morbid joke. Yeah, it's super morbid, and it's sad because that shit happens. But like, you know, we're humans, and I'm gonna like tell you what's on my mind. So, well, it's you, Austin. That's what we expect from you. That's what you bring to this show is your uncensored opinions. Oh, you know what energy? So he is a law student. <laughs> So maybe that is a little bit of a, you know, reason yeah. for him to ask those kind of questions. But regardless, it is a strange question to ask, even as a law student or a true crime enthusiast. The new year is here and we are committed to kicking it off right by finding small ways to help us look and feel our best. We really want to prioritize taking care of ourselves inside and out. And one of my new year's resolutions is to take better care of my skin in 2024. And that is why I am so excited to partner with Apostrophe. Whether you're dealing with hormonal acne, breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe's mission is to empower you and help you feel confident and comfortable in your own skin. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. It offers access to prescription treatments for all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even back, chest, and butt acne. Treat breakouts from head to toe. My personal skincare goals are to reduce the sunspots that I have from excessive tanning in my naive younger days. If you have ever had a heart outline from those little stickers that they'd give you at the tanning salon, it might be time to check out Apostrophe. I was truly shocked at how simple it was to create an account 
choose a dermatologist and receive a personalized plan for my unique skin. I just had to send in a couple pictures of my skin. There was no appointment needing, no driving, no waiting in an office, no waiting months for an appointment. And before I knew it, a dermatologist prescribed me exactly what he thought I needed and it was on its way in the mail. It literally does not get more convenient than this. Right now we have a special deal for our audience where you can get your first visit for only $5 by going to apostrophe.com slash MM when you use our code MM. And that's a saving of $15 and it's only available to our Mama Mystery listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash MM click get started and then use our code MM at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you so much to apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. I cannot wait to share this journey with you and to show you how much my skin improves once I start using these products. Let's go. So when police searched Steven's apartment, They found a collection of guns, knives, and tons and tons of toilet paper. See, this dude keeps getting stranger and stranger. And it's 2011. It's not 2020. No, exactly. I'm so surprised you you heard that. You were listening. I graduated in 2011, so it stuck with me. I was still listening. You still give me credit. Sheesh. You were listening. I'm proud. Okay, so in one of the rooms... One corner of the room was stacked almost to the ceiling in packages of toilet paper. And the rest of the room was crammed with totes of clothing, junk, and canned food. It was almost like he's a prepper, like a doomsday prepper or something. So in his bedroom, they found a pair of women's underwear cut out in the shape of a mask and also a huge collection of unopened condoms, despite the fact that he admitted multiple times to multiple people that he was a virgin vowing to stay celibate until he got married. Just practicing on himself into condoms 24-7. Oh, gross. But no, they were unopened. So why do you even have them at all? And why would you need them if you are getting if you want to save yourself till marriage? Less cleanup or something. I don't know. Or, oh, gross. Okay, anyway, by far the most damning thing, however, were items of Lauren's. They found a flash drive containing hundreds of personal photos of Lauren's, They found some of Lauren's underwear in his apartment. What? And they found a copy of her apartment key. I got the goosebumps. It's way too many red flags. It was already red flags. And then when he starts having her stuff, that's weird. Yeah. Another disturbing detail is that the detectives obtained Stephen's computer. And although Stephen tried to delete his search history and some files from his computer before they got a hold of it, forensics forensics discovered that some of his internet searches included a lot of time spent on Lauren's Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Dude's a stalker. Holy shit. And while he was scrolling her pages, he was simultaneously watching violent porn in other tabs or windows at the same time. Some of his other searches included, but weren't limited to child sexual abuse material and a Google search for how to molest sleeping girls. What a dirt bag. Send him to the wood chipper. Good Lord. Also on his computer, they found uh, videos that he had taken from right outside Lauren's apartment window. He had built a stick with an attachment at the end of it for a camera, held it up to her second story window, and recorded footage through her blinds on the same night that she was murdered. So at this point, they arrested Stephen McDaniel for the murder of Lauren Giddings. 
And despite all the evidence against him, Stephen maintained his innocence for three years until he finally accepted a plea deal in 2014. I have the goosebumps because I'm thinking of like her parents would want to kill him. Mm -hmm. And it'd be tough not to. Like it's like that one case where the guy is in the phone booth and whenever he walks out of the courtroom, he kills him Mm -hmm. because he was like molesting his kids. Yes, we need to cover that story. I mean, I guess there's probably not much to cover, but it's It's just this viral video. Yeah, definitely worth talking about. This viral video... I'll see if I can find it and share it to our Instagram or even in this video. But it's about this dad who showed up. I think the the culprit was being extradited or something because it was like in an airport, I want to say, or some public space. And the dad of the victim disguised himself and acted like he was just talking on the payphone. And then as soon as the suspect walked by in cuffs, he turned around and shot him and killed him. And then went straight into custody and was cool with it. And the cops were like, man, why did you do that? And it's like, why do you think? Mm -hmm. I can't believe, like, I can't believe I wouldn't do the same thing, you Mm -hmm. know, or at least I would really, really want to do the same thing. For sure. I'm amazed at family members and parents who are able to cope with grace because I I wouldn't have that grace. So this dude, three years, he maintains his innocence. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So he accepted a plea deal in 2014, and this deal required him to write a detailed confession about the murder, and in exchange, the death penalty would be taken off the table. So Stephen accepted, and then on April 21st of 2014, he wrote the following letter. On Sunday, June 26, 2011, around 4.30 a.m., I entered Lauren Giddings' apartment with a master key I possessed. I was wearing gloves and a mask, I walked to her bedroom door and stood there observing her sleeping. As I took another step, the floor creaked and she awoke. She sat up in bed, saw me, and said very calmly, get the fuck out. What? It's almost like she knew it was him. Well, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know. No, I'm just throwing it out there like as a possible, like, I wonder if like she knew he had a key and she was like, not, not right now or something. I don't know. Get the fuck out. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how the I calm, would react. The calmness of her saying it is what's weird. Well, and this is his version. True. So All right, I'm going to shut that's up. probably not even what really happened. Yeah. Okay, never mind. You keep going. He said, I leaped across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed to the floor, and in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and lower body under her bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. I kept my hands around her throat as we fell to the floor, She reached up and was able to grab the mask and pull it off my head. She said, Stephen, please stop. I continued to strangle her until she stopped moving and I remained that way, my hands around her throat. For several minutes, possibly as long as 15 minutes, she did not move anymore. Again, another thing I don't think I believe because if you've got hands around your throat, I doubt you have the air in your lungs to say, Stephen, please stop. I mean, she's probably fighting for her life. Maybe... Maybe his mask came down and she saw him and was startled, but like, I just don't believe this guy at all. I guess that's what it really comes down to. So he said, I dragged her into her bathroom and placed her in the bathtub, then returned to my apartment. I remained in my apartment, mostly on my computer throughout the day, Sunday, June 26th. I returned to Lauren's apartment around midnight Sunday to begin to dismember her with the hacksaw that was later recovered from the laundry room maintenance closet. I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in, a, in several black trash bags separately, and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster across the street from Barrister's Hall Apartments. 
I caught up the mask, gloves, and my shirt and flushed them down my toilet. I wrapped her torso in black plastic trash bags and placed it in the green Barrister's Hall trash can on Tuesday, June 28th before daylight. I then cleaned up her bathroom. I never used the refrigerator in apartment one. At no time before Lauren's death did I sexually accost her. At no point after her death did I perform any sexual act of any kind with respect to her remains. She was wearing the pink running shorts when she died and I never removed them. They were found on her torso just as I had left them. On Monday, I stayed home from bar prep class. Over the next several days, I rarely slept, used my computer extensively, yet still attended bar prep class on Tuesday and Wednesday. I joined the search party Wednesday night into the early hours of Thursday morning, June 30th, still in a dreamlike delusional state in which I believed at the time while taking part in the search that Lauren was still alive and that I had not done what I had done, even searching the empty law school in a delusional hope of finding Lauren alive and well as if I had not really killed her. During the weeks leading up to my actions and the days following, as I look back on it now, I can only describe myself as divided in mind, unable to account for how I could have committed these horrible acts, and at the same time, also able to carry on my daily routines. It is difficult for me to explain why I killed Lauren and attempted to conceal my deed the way I did. The difficulty in explaining it lies in my own ability to understand it myself. I know that it was very wrong. I am not delusional or without any morals or decency. Yet I acknowledge that something in my makeup, my psychology, my neuropathy, my own particular pathology perhaps must explain it, but it is beyond my reach. Lauren was my friend. Not a day goes by that I do not grieve over her death. I am extremely sorry for what I did to Lauren and her family. I do not expect the forgiveness of Lauren's family, and there is no way I can ever deserve it. No words are sufficient to take away their pain. If I could take back what happened, I would do so. If I could restore Lauren to her family, I would. All I can say to Lauren's family and her many friends is I am very sorry. Man, what a complete dirtbag. And it's infuriating to listen to. I'm with you. I don't really trust him. And just a dirt bag. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Lauren's sister, Caitlin, was shocked to find out that Stephen was the one who killed her sister. She said, quote, it seemed like she might have been one of the only people who was actually nice to him and gave him some attention, even though he might have been a loner. There's no story here about telling your kids to lock their car when they get in or don't go to this side of town. You know, there's a no, she shouldn't have done this and it wouldn't have happened because you should always be nice to people. You should always be nice to your neighbors. Just because someone looks different doesn't mean they are, but in this case, he just was, end quote. So Caitlin named her daughter after Lauren to honor her sister's memory, and they continue to celebrate her birthdays. They have annual runs and softball tournaments in her honor. Lauren is also remembered in the Macon community because there is a plaque dedicated to Lauren at Mercer Law School, and there's a pink bench at Washington Park dedicated to her memory. Stephen McDaniel attempted to appeal the verdict in the case in 2017, citing ineffective counsel. His dad, Mark McDaniel, even started a GoFundMe in an effort to raise $5,000 to assist in Stephen's legal fight. He wrote, quote, Stephen has been separated from his family for the past seven years. He lost three grandparents and was deprived the privilege of seeing and being a part of his brother and sister's lives. 
All monetary support will be used for this benefit and will be greatly appreciated by both Stephen and his family. Rightfully so, after he took this girl's life. So, I mean, the. Please tell me nobody donated. Uh, no, it was taken down before they could even re- raise a dime. But the audacity to write, he was deprived the privilege of seeing and being a part of his brothers and sisters' lives. That's crazy. So was Lauren at the hands of your psychotic son. Hmm. He is exactly where he needs to be. He deserves exactly what he's getting and more, truly. But it just blows me away. And at no point did the GoFundMe mention why he was even in prison, which was for admitting to the brutal murderer of Lauren Giddings. Stephen admitted to the atrocious and violent attack on Lauren. Stephen is the one for being, he's the one to blame for being deprived of being a part of his family's life. And it sounds like the delusion of Stephen McDaniel runs deep in that McDaniel family tree. And Stephen is right where he deserves to be. But Stephen and his dad believed that there was misconduct on the state's behalf and that for that reason, he should be allowed to either be set free or receive a new trial. I would ask you what the misconduct was, but who gives a shit? <laughs> exactly. Do you, they, do you know? So... Who I, gives a shit? I do know. It, do, no, it really I, doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's 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 nitpicking. It's yeah. just nitpicking so that you can try to claim that there was a mistrial for an effort to get a new one. And they want to essentially separate his actual crime from the actual law in hopes that he will be set free on a technicality. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a break. So he tried to appeal again last year. Unsurprisingly, Stephen eventually lost his appeal and continues to serve his time in the Hancock State Prison. He's serving a life sentence with a possibility of parole after 30 years. And to this day, the rest of Lauren's remains have never been found. If you were one of the hundreds of idiots that we've covered in these episodes that did these crimes, like as if it doesn't tell me enough that you're jacked in the head... Like you go through life living with the the image, the vision of what you did clear as day in your head. And I can't even imagine living with that. And you sell yourself on, I should be free or I don't know. It's just crazy. You think of if you see something in life, like a normal human, not one of these effed up murders. Okay. You see something in life that isn't whether it's somebody breaking a bone, whether it's a leg snapping, whether it's something crazy, right? Mm-hmm. A sporting accident. You see that, that sometimes will haunt you and stick with you. And you're like, man, I remember that vivid memory of that terrible thing that happened. Watching our daughter fall down and running on Halloween and hit her tooth oh, on the pavement. Yeah. Like, oh, I can almost feel it in my teeth for her. And like, you think about that and you have to live with that. That's a normal everyday thing that happened. I can't imagine these people that go on and live with this chaotic, horrible thing they've done. Mm-hmm. In the vision of it in their head, like how do you? I don't. It just goes how to show how messed that? up you are. Yeah, yeah. And it then, goes to show that there's a serious defect in their brain to just be able to carry on living despite having this memory mm-hmm. embedded in your brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be. But that's the the reconcile that we try to make as people who are normal and have compassion and decency. And so we listen to these stories and these crimes, and we try to understand. What makes somebody tick like that? What make like the delusion to to argue that you deserve to be free despite that you took somebody's life? That is permanent. Yeah. This person's life is over for no reason. You weren't defending yourself. It wasn't an accident. You did this on purpose. You planned and you carried out this act. Mm-hmm. Why 
uh, the delusion to think that you deserve to be free at some point, that just does not make sense. It does not compute in my brain. I can't understand it. And, and so it's some, go ahead. It reminds me of when we went to CrimeCon and confronted the Murdoch defense team. Mm-hmm. And you remember how you asked him, you asked Dick Harputlian, which is one of Alec Murdoch's defense attorneys, how he sleeps at night defending people who have admitted their guilt. And I didn't ask it in an animosity driven way. Mm-hmm. Like I asked it like, hey, I'm genuinely curious. How do you sleep at night knowing that somebody told you, yeah, I murdered them and you're about to go have their back in this case? Mm-hmm. Period. There's no, oh, what, what did he say? He told me I was juvenile. My yeah. thinking was juvenile and that um, he that took an everybody deserves a right to a defense. Yeah, no, sure, man. Sure, everyone deserves a right to a defense. Except if you've committed this horrible crime, it doesn't like, sure, you deserve a right to a defense, whatever. It doesn't mean you have to take it. It doesn't mean you have to take it for one as an attorney, but also, I mean, cause you can elect to take yeah. on a client or not, unless you're probably, I don't know. There's a lot of like nitty gritty stuff. If you get assigned to a client, you have to have a better reason to, you know, like withdraw from that case. Regardless, we're not getting into that. We're talking about somebody who chose to represent their friend who committed these crimes or in the sense that they have a client that has admitted that they killed somebody, but they want to be set free. I I just, I know that everyone has their right to a defense, but if you knowingly and plan to take somebody's life, you do not deserve to be free. You do not deserve a new trial. You deserve to rot. In my opinion, you deserve to have the same kind of death, if not worse, than the person that you took it from. The fact that he had his hands around her neck for 15 minutes mm-hmm. as she fought and struggled and looked her neighbor in the eyes, the neighbor that she had been nice to, one of the probably one of few people that was ever nice to him, and he took her life. You mm-hmm. deserve, you don't deserve shit. Mm-hmm. Period. It just blows my mind, people mm-hmm. like that, that think they deserve any kind of fairness after they do something like that on purpose. Right. Right. I agree. I mean, I could go on a tangent on that all day, but we will just wrap it up because I know the majority of you probably agree. So we're just preaching to the choir at this point, but just in case. Mama. Mystery. (sighs) 